Thank you. Nice job, guys. That was awesome. And I kind of want that pot and pan whole setup at my house so I could just go wild. It's awesome. It is such a joy to be back with you here at Horizon. I have missed you guys, and I'm really glad you're here today. It's pretty awesome. So in this series, it has been just such a gift. Uh, if you haven't followed along, you can jump online and see the first two, the last two kind of like episodes in this series um, on savoring the taste of life. And it's worthwhile because not only were Chad and Drew awesome, but also there are some more killer recipes that you can just work into your repertoire, which is fabulous. But when I was invited to come, part of the reason is, is that because the last maybe 15 years, I have been studying food within the ancient text in the Bible. And this hunger to kind of understand this is something that just drove me to dive into this book and just say, well, what does this look like? What does this feel like? And what I begin to discover is if you start to read this book, you'll, you'll find that food, it's like it pops and sizzles on almost every page. Do we have any fans of the Food Network here? Yeah, yes. Do we have any fans of Rachel Ray, Bobby Flay, Chick-fil-A, right? Like, like all of those things. And so this hunger to kind of know this book and to understand food has taken me all over the country and really the world. I went and I spent time with a shepherdess up in Oregon. I traveled to Napa Valley to pluck grapes. I went to Madera, California to learn about figs. I cold called one of the heads of, of Yale's religious school and I introduced myself and I talked about the project I was working on and then I just, you know, invited myself to his house to bake bread for an afternoon because that's what normal people do and serial killers. Like I even went over to Israel and I fished in the Galilee and I got invited to spend time with a family in Croatia and bring in an olive harvest and learn about olive oil from a family who had been raising and nurturing those trees for literally generation after generation, hundreds of years. And with each person, I would kind of open up this book and I would say, hey, how do you read this passage, not as some like big fancy theologian, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way that I read this book forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in a religious context? How have I studied this book? Have I, have I listened to so many teachings on this book? How have I downloaded so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? This journey became the foundation for two different books, one called Taste and See, and the other called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey because we all need some extra alliteration in our lives. And this started to shift the way that I encountered food, how I gathered around a table, how I thought about the particulars of what was nourishing us and how we are nourished both by God but also with each other. And so today, I want to zero in on one particular food, and it's one that I would argue that possibly, like, if it did not exist, I might not exist. You see, I was raised by a Jewish father who back in the 1950s de 
developed longboards the very first time surfing was becoming a thing. And he would cruise up and down the coast of the East Coast, and he would go into various stores and try to sell his surfboards and introduce them. And as he is going along one particular day, he walked into a little surf shop and he saw a really cute gal who caught his eye. And so he was a little nervous and a little awkward, but he thought, you know what we have in common? We have surfing. And so he went up to her and he just started conversing with her and asking questions. And he really wanted to invite her to dinner, but he didn't know how. And so he just said, hey, if you'll go to dinner with me tonight, I'll give you a discount on any surfboard you want. And so surprisingly, this woman said yes, and they went out to dinner. And as part of the appetizer, she ordered a bowl of soup. And she grabbed the salt, and she just started salting the soup. And she was caught up in telling this story that was a little bit long. And she's going, and, and my father's eyes are getting wider and wider. And he doesn't know whether to interrupt her or what to do, when suddenly the lid of the salt shaker pops off, splashes in the soup, salt goes everywhere. And that woman thought, there is no way I am getting a second date. But something about that moment and that woman just kind of caught my dad's attention and kept it. And so this is a photo of my mom and dad celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And they still tell that story and chuckle to this day. So arguably, without salt, I would not exist. But neither would you. Salt is found in our sweat and in our saliva and in our tears. If you're injured and you go to the hospital, one of the first things they will do is hook you up to a saline bag. Physiologically, salt is crucial to transmit nerve impulses and to stimulate muscles. If all of the salt was drained from your body, your heart would cease to beat. Now we live in an age where salt is just so common and so accessible and so inexpensive that we don't think about it a lot. I mean, consider if you went down to Skyline and you ordered something, you said, hey, could I get some salt here? And they said, there will be an upcharge for that. You would probably think, what is going on here? But that has not been the case for most of human history. It was actually the Egyptians who first discovered the power and the potential of salt. They learned that if they would harvest the salt from the Nile Delta, and they would take a fish, like we saw in the recipe, or a piece of meat, and they would make thin cuts in it, and they would add the salt, then all of a sudden that incredibly valuable and precious food source that once went bad in 24 or 36 hours, it would now last 24 to 36 months. And that was a game changer and a moment in history where there was no refrigeration. But it wasn't just the Egyptians who loved salt. The Romans were so passionate about salt that they actually built a road called the Salt Road into the center of their empire. Why did they care so much about salt? Because the Romans who ruled during the time of Jesus was primarily an empire that grew through military force. And any of you who have served in the military, we are so grateful for your service. But as they sent their soldiers out on the battlefield, they began to notice that if the salt was not replenished in their bodies, then they would experience confusion, seizures, even permanent brain damage. And so 
in Rome, they began including salt and how they took care of their soldiers. And in fact, in Latin, the word sal is where we get the word salt from. So that is actually where we get the word salary from, meaning one who is paid in salt. It's the etymology of words like salad, vegetables seasoned with salt, or sausage, which is simply meat seasoned with salt. And I think that it is this kind of historical background that helps illuminate just how important salt is. For any history buffs in the room, Napoleon reached a point in a battle where he was struggling because they had no access to salt. And without the access to salt, his soldiers' wounds, they just wouldn't heal. For those of you who love the Civil War, the Union Army was very intense on fighting as hard as they needed to to win one particular town in Virginia. Its name? Saltville. Because they knew how essential that salt was for the war. And so apart from salt, we simply cannot live. And I think it's this historical context that just begins to add some depth. When Jesus makes a declaration in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he simply says this, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so in order to understand this, I decided to travel about 150 miles south of our home in Utah to a place where it was an ancient seabed that was frozen in time, a place called the Redmond Salt Mine. And when I arrived, I was greeted by a 50-something man by the name of Neil who was so kind and jovial, who was the kind of guy who would give Doc, or Mr. Fred Rogers a little run on his money. And so we are talking, and he invites me to go into the salt mine. And of course, I jump at the opportunity. He hands me a hard hat. We climb into a truck, and he begins driving toward the back of the property, where this mouth of the cave, it's like it just swallows us whole as we drive in. And I can see the salt stalactites dripping from the ceiling. And we continue to drive, and the road keeps splitting, and there are gates, and, and we go right on one and left on another and right. And, and somewhere in there, he said, you know, pay attention to, to the which path we take, because if something were to collapse or happen, you've got to figure out how to get out of here. And I am thinking, I am very directionally challenged, and this is not going to go well. But after driving for some time, we came to a depth of 410 feet within the salt mine. All of a sudden, there was this large equipment before us, and Neil flashed the lights of the truck twice, and all of a sudden, the machinery stopped. He nodded at me and said, it's safe to get out. And I opened the door of the truck, and as I did, I breathed in, and it smelled like the sweet morning of being near the ocean. When I climbed down out of the truck, suddenly I was not just surrounded by salt on the ceilings and the walls of this cave, but beneath it was like walking on a beach. And as I'm looking down, I'm noticing in the light that there are salt little particles that are falling like snow. I immediately reached down and I scooped up a large portion of salt. And kind of being that person who goes to Costco or Sam's Club or really anywhere and can't not try the samples. I was like, ooh, I've got to try this. And so I took a little bit of pinch of the salt, and it, it didn't taste like any other salt I'd ever had. Like it had more dimension to it, and it almost had this sweet finish. Neil then, he waved me over to the site, 
side of the cave, and he said, Margaret, you've got to see this. As I'm walking over, the salt particles are still falling, and the side of the cave just has this thin layer of these salt particles all over it. And Neil takes his hand, and he brushes it, all of that salt away, and what is now a wall of salt in such incredible beauty. It's the color of peach garnets and of tan and white quartz. And in the truck's light is such glistening beauty. And to think that a creator God would have established such beauty, not just in the solar system and in the sky and on the earth that we conceive, but even in the crevices deep within the earth and inside of you and of me. Well, Neil said, hey, we've actually shut down the mine by having you here, so we got to get out of here. And so we climbed back up into the truck, and we began driving our way out. And we got back. I remember he said, Neil, Neil said, I've got a piece of the salt that I'd like to give you. And I was like, that would be amazing. And so he sent me one home with one of the pieces from the Redmond Salt Mine. Would anybody here like to see that? Let me show you real quick. This is some of the salt in its form from the Redmond salt mine. And if you look at it, you can see kind of with the light that it glistens and the more that you polish it or rub off the salt particles, that it becomes brighter and brighter and more glistening. And the red hues here are actually from the iron and the dark brown hues are from the magnesium. There's more than 60 different minerals within here that our bodies need in order to be healthy. And so when you grind this up, it looks like a pink Himalayan salt. But what's fascinating is that you don't have to go to the other side of the world or order it from that region. This kind of salt exists here in our own nation. And so as I am looking at this and I am studying it, I begin to think, well, what does this have to do with salt in the Bible and with Jesus' declaration? Well, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was never referring to the massly refined, chemically altered, fortified with iodine since 1924 for the reason of goiters, kind of salt that often graces our tables. Rather, when he was saying, you are the salt of the earth, he, he was saying, just like that salt you are somebody who has been hewn, you have been brought forth from your particular geography, from your particular upbringing, from your particular place and time and in history. And that God has formed you with your unique personality and strengths and weaknesses and quirks and that God wants to use all of that as he pours you out as the salt of the earth. And so when we look at Jesus' declaration that you are the salt of the earth, we have to consider this historical and cultural background, particularly when those living in antiquity first heard these words. You see, I think that when those who were listening to Jesus declare those words, when they heard him say, you are the salt of the earth, they recognized that Jesus was saying, you are a preserving agent. That just as salt is placed in those layers of fish or meat like it was with the Egyptians, that God has taken you and placed you in this time, in this slice of history, in this moment as preserving agents. To preserve what? 
the ways and the life, the generosity and the grace and the kindness and the love of Jesus Christ. And so as we are preserving agents, those in antiquity would have also heard Jesus' teaching and recognized something that we all know today. And that is, as the salt of the earth, you are also a flavoring agent. That everywhere you go, you are called to bring the flavor of heaven down here to earth. That where there is bitterness, you offer forgiveness. That where there is sourness, you deliver sweetness. That what they taste is the goodness and the graciousness of a loving God. Just this past weekend, I heard a story from a friend about her son-in-law who had gone out to the lake in the spring. And he was so excited. It was a glistening, just gorgeous day. And so he brought his three kids who were littles, and he brought a ton of friends, and they climbed in the boat. And it felt like it was heavy. It felt like it was pretty sunk down, but he just reasoned, you know, it's because there's just so many people in here. And so he took off, and they're going, and they're laughing, and they're having a great time until he gets to the far end of the lake. And suddenly he's like, man, something still is not right. And so he looks down and he looks around and he realizes that the boat is flooding with water. And he had left the plug back on the dock. And so he turns around and he tries to gun it to get back to the dock on the far side of the lake. But it's slow with all the people in there. And he's just trying to keep it afloat and keep going and get everybody back to safety. But before he can get to the dock, there's a large area of the lake that is marshaled off for as a no-wake zone. And so as he enters, as fast as he can go into that no-wake zone, all of a sudden, people just start yelling at him. They're saying, slow down, you're going too fast. One person is yelling obscenities, another is waving at him with one finger. (laughs) And this guy has no options. But there was one person on a boat that day who yelled out, do you need help? And the guy's like, yeah. He says, how can we help? And he brought his boat alongside this guy's, was able to deboard a ton of the people on his boat so he could safely make it back to the dock. And the question is simply today, in this moment, in this slice of history, how are you living? Are you looking at people who maybe are causing your boat to rock a little bit? You're feeling the rock and those waves. For others of you, maybe you're seeing people aren't doing the things that you would do them in the same way that you would do them. For others of you, you're looking out and you're mad by what you see. Are you yelling out obscenities? Are you yelling out and trying to tell people what to do when you could simply be asking Do you need help? How can we help? And sidle up beside them in such a way that brings safety, grace, and provision in their moment of need. And so as the salt of the earth, those who listened to Jesus knew that he was saying that you are a preserving agent and a flavoring agent, but he also they recognized that there was something more. You see, Jesus makes this interesting observation, and he starts to unpack this. He makes this, in Greek, six-word declaration that you are the salt of the earth. In Matthew, in something called the Sermon on the Mount, 
But also a slight variation of that is, is in the Gospel of Luke known as the Sermon on the Plain. And that six-word declaration is followed in Greek by about a 20-word warning. And this little uh, translation of this is slightly different than what you'll see on the screen. But Jesus continues and said, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure manure pile. It is thrown out. That translation says dunghill. And I'd read this a lot, and I just kind of struggled with it because I'd never noticed that detail that there's a connection between salt and both the soil and the dunghill or the manure. And so being super curious, I just started to research, to dive into the conversation with Neil, and it turns out that it's not just humans that need salt. Plants need it too. Now, those of you who are gardeners know that if you just go out with a big old large bag of salt and you dump it on your flower bed or on your lawn, you are going to kill everything and nothing is going to grow well. But here's what's interesting, that if you go out with just the right amount of salt, that that vegetation will naturally flourish. It's why if you go to a hardware store and buy something like miracle Grow, you will notice that the primary ingredient or one of them is sodium chloride. It's why even to this day in the Dead Sea in Israel, one of the primary exports is fertilizer, salt. And so that explains the soil, but what about the manure? Well, my husband Leif, you see by the book table, he is, he's the the love of my life, man, I adore that guy. But we have a very cute dog by the name of Zoo. Here's a picture of him. Uh, By the way, so first of all, he weighs in at four pounds, four ounces. Uh, I would also let you know that if you name a dog or have a choice of a name, maybe don't name it Zoom because you will be running around chasing him the whole time. You know, like don't name your dog Rogue because he's going to go rogue. Nobody told me this and I wish they had. But we live in a ski town and it snows heavily and this last winter was insane. Most snow on record everywhere. And what happened is is when the snow melted, we discovered all of Zoom's little deposits all over the yard that had been collecting for about six months. And what I learned in research is that if I were to go out there with a little bit of salt on each one and add it, it would change the manure so that it didn't just rot, but it actually broke down in such a way that the nutrients were were preserved and it would cause the vegetation to flourish. And so when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was not just talking about table salt, he was talking about fertilizer salt. So my hunch is this morning when you came to Horizon, you had no idea that you were gonna get a history lesson, a science lesson, a Bible lesson, and a lesson on poop. But as the salt of the earth, you are not just preserving agents. You are not just flavoring agents. You are agents of human flourishing. Wherever you go, you are called to foster new life, to help people grow into the fullness of all God has for them. That where there is weakness, you bring strength. That where there is despair, you bring hope. And that where there is death, you speak life. Because Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are an agent 
of preserving, flavoring, and human flourishing. And often, the places that Christ or God nudges us toward, they're the hard places. Like you're conscious of like, oh, I really need to do that. And there'll be some sort of resistance. Those places are often stinky, messy, and sometimes the last places or the last people that we ever want to serve. But it's not just salary and salad and sausage that find their Latin root in salt. The word for salvation is derived from the same Latin root as salt. It is your saltiness that brings salvation to a lost, hungry, and dying world. Some time ago, I met a woman named Susan. She was so lovely. And she described her son and was just bragging on him. It was so fun to listen to a mama brag on their kid. You just see her glow in her eyes. But as she was talking about him, she said how he had gone to this church and she'd just seen some cool changes in his life, like just making better decisions. And she said, but one summer, a few years later, he got a job at a construction company and he was working on the crew. And one day out of a freak accident, a large piece of equipment fell and hit him on the head. They rushed him to a hospital. Susan got there as fast as she could. And when she saw the doctors, they assured her it was going to be okay. But five years, five days later, he died. And Susan described that he was so stinking angry at God. She was so mad that this had happened, that she had lost her precious son. And she described this day about six months later where she went up into her son's bedroom. She hadn't touched anything She or her husband, there was this thin layer of dust that covered everything. And she said in that place, she just began to weep. She was just so overcome with the grief. And as the tears flow, it became like almost this wailing until she described that she actually fell down on the floor and she took her hands and she beat them against the carpeting as strong as she possibly could until she was exhausted And in that place, she said she knew that she had a decision to make. She could continue on the path that she was on and become a bitter, angry old woman. Or she could choose to become a follower of Jesus and ask him by his grace and love to do what she could not do on her own. She described that she got off of that carpet that day a different woman. She soon started going to the church that her son had attended. And all of a sudden, her husband started to notice something different about her, something good, something that was just shining out of her that he he couldn't ignore. And so he started going to that church, and then he decided to become a follower of Jesus. But Susan, Susan was this kind of woman who just kept remaining suspicious that God was up to something good. And so despite everything, she just kind of felt this conscience, this nudge, so to speak, to reach out through LifeLink, the organization that had coordinated her son's organ transplants, to reach out to all those people. She couldn't reach out directly. She had to go through the organization. And so she never knew where those letters went, but she sat down and she wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And do you know of all the people receive those organs, only one chose to write back. 
And it was the young man who had received her son's heart. And so Susan starts exchanging letters, phone calls. Eventually they meet up a few times. And Susan just being her, talking about her faith, all of a sudden that young man decides to become a follower of Jesus too. And she shared this picture with me. This is a picture of Susan with that young man. And I don't know what you see in that image, but I see a mama who got to hear her son's heart beat again. See, we are a people who remain suspicious that even in the pain, even in the darkness, that just perhaps God can work things together, that God can bring about good even when it seems impossible. And so that gift, that gift of salvation, which just is a fancy word for saying rescue, God offers all of us. And it's a beautiful gift should we choose to respond. But my question for you today is simply how are you living your life? It's dicey out there, guys. It's toxic, it's polarizing, and the divides in our nation are wider than it's ever been. It's so easy to make snap judgments, to write people off, to say no, to make distance in relationships, give up on friendships that have been there for many years of our life. But my question is simply, how are you living? Are you living as the one who is watching someone rock your boat, go through a no-wake zone, and yelling out yells and screams and obscenities and giving people the bird and an ain't a pet parakeet? Or are you the person who's crying out to others, do you need help? How can we help? And being part of rescuing others individually and as families and as communities that they may get safely to the shore. May you be the latter and may you go forth as the salt of the earth.